It's great to be with you today. Today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Hear now God's word for us. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have spoken, that you have worked through authors throughout history to bring together a unified message of your love toward us. And so God, may you give us now ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say and speak into us as followers of Jesus and as a community centered in on Christ. God, we need you. We need your spirit to work in and among us and we trust that you will do so. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, there I was, <clears throat> and I was uh, looking in an open freezer, starting to think about how much ice cream I wanted to eat and <laughs> which Netflix show I wanted to escape to. It was later in the evening, and uh, I knew that if I ate ice cream and I stayed up super late, it was gonna sabotage my early morning run. So I had a choice to make. I could either go to bed, shut the freezer, get a good night's sleep, and hit the pavement early in the morning and have a great run, or I could just choose to rest and relax and tell myself, you know what, Gabe, you deserve this. It's time to unwind. Just eat some ice cream, some Reese's ice cream, no less, and watch some Netflix and relax. You see, the problem in the midst of that moment is that evening me, if I want to use Jerry Seinfeld language, evening me didn't really care a lot about morning me. Evening me was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I get that you're going to have a sluggish morning run if you eat this ice cream and stay up late, but that's morning me's problem. Evening me is ready to party. Now, every single one of us can relate to this kind of self-sabotage when it comes to change, can't we? Self-sabotage is where we choose short-term relief or a short-term short substitute uh, that has lasting implications on our goals. Sometimes we can intentionally choose to put ourselves in a compromising position. Maybe we can procrastinate what we know we should do because it feels painful. And then when the time arrives, we feel ill-equipped. Short or self-sabotage is a common threat to change. But there's actually another threat that's even more sinister. We just aren't trained to be able to notice it when it comes. What is it? That's what we're going to talk about today. You see, we're in the middle of a series entitled, We Can Change. We believe that the gospel meets us no matter who we are, no matter our social location, no matter what's been done to us, and comes with hope by the power of the Spirit that God can do his magnificent work in growing and changing us to be more like Jesus, the most perfect human who has ever lived. 
We saw in week one where this change starts. It starts with God's love. Only love can change you. Only God's love, resting and receiving his secure love and attaching to him is where change begins. Then we saw in week two how we change. You see, we can't change any part of us without employing every part of us. That means all of our body, all of our mind engaged in God's purposes is how God seeks to bring about robust change in your life and mine. Last week, we saw how your change must include a we, not just a me. This must be a communal enterprise. And it's right here where we begin to find where one of the greatest threats resides. We're not trained to see it because we often see things in, in terms of me, not in terms of us. And so we're going to be focusing on what prevents change this week. If we aren't trained to see it, this is so important, if we can't see it, if we're not trained to look for it, then our pursuit of change will constantly meet with frustration and we won't know why. So what's one of the greatest ways or threats to, to sabotage our, our, our change? Communal sabotage is one of our greatest threats to change. When our loving connections one to another are actually disrupted, we forget who we are. And when we forget who we are, then we begin to engage in the ways of the world once again, which runs counter to the change that God wants to bring in your life and mine. Now, one of the biggest problems I think in the church is that we can come with this idealism that we can just get Christians together, throw a Bible in the room and tell them to pray and the Spirit will do his work. The Spirit can do truly astounding things. But the problem is, is that you and I are still sinners in process. And, and we often live out of our malformation rather than transformation and we still act out of our wounds and our trauma. And so often the church has failed and having a more realistic perspective of us as human beings and what God is doing. And often I believe I failed and equipping the church to engage this more thoughtfully. You see, the biblical authors, when they come to humanity, yes, they have great hope that we can change by the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit, but there's also a realism about it in terms of our brokenness. And what we're going to see today, this is kind of our thesis for our time together, is that your change needs us to fight for us. Your change needs us, the church, to really fight to be who we are called to be, to live into the identity that God has designed us to embrace and to live out of. And the Apostle Paul, he won't let us forget why we're in this together and what can absolutely tear us apart. So what we're going to see is two ways that we can sabotage growth in a group together and the way forward to address these common threats. Okay, so two ways we can sabotage growth in each other and the way forward to address these common threats. All right, so two ways our growth can be sabotaged. Number one, here's number one uh, threat um, that we can, or way we can sabotage our growth together, it's this. We misunderstand why we need each other. We misunderstand why we need each other. We talked about last time together that we are a diverse people, a diverse group of people seeking to pursue each other's growth in Jesus. That's what God has brought us together for in this body, is to spur one another to grow in wholeness, to grow in fullness, and to spur that on in one another, and so to be an avenue to actually care for others even outside of the church. Now the problem is that we can often come to the church and assume that it's a place to find nice acquaintances. 
meaning. We don't want to let you into our lives. We don't want to actually engage in anything deep and meaningful. You're not allowed to challenge me, but instead I just want to find a couple friends to watch a couple movies and to get on with my life so that I don't feel quite alone. That's not what we see on the pages of scripture as to why God has brought us together. Instead, he's not bringing together a couple acquaintances. He's remaking a whole new family that's seeking to grow in Christ. And so love one another in genuine and beautiful and rich ways. Look with me back at Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul has this to say. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts or does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Listen, all of these gifts are for something. They're not just there to be pleasurable. They're there to actually help and build up the church. We could go through each and every one of these and talk about how these are actually gifts for building up and bringing the church to be a more beautiful people in the world. And the other way that we understand this to be really, really crucial is to understand how the word for in verse 3, that very first word, F-O-R, is an explanatory conjunction that consistently points us back to verses 1 and 2. God wants us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, and he also wants us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. For, and we do this in this community, and all of these gifts, the gifts that, people, that the Spirit has given, these members that are gifted to the community, are to come and help cultivate an environment where people can grow in Christ-likeness, so that those barriers are pushed to the wayside, and that an environment, a community of health, might therefore be a catalyst for growth in your life and mine. Well, last week we said that it was essential for your growth to be deeply attached in a community. Today I want to ask, is that the kind of community you find yourself in? Whether it's a community group, whether it's a group of friends, whether it's a men's group or a women's group, is that how you would define your group? That you come together to actually pursue each other's growth in Christ? If you don't have that group, then you're very much in a very uh, vulnerable position. But if you're in a group and it doesn't have that goal, it doesn't have that identity, you're also in a vulnerable position. Are you living into that identity? Is your group embracing that identity? Because all you have to do to prevent change in your life is actually to not intentionally pursue it. Okay, so number one, one of the ways that we can sabotage our growth in our community is by misunderstanding why we need each other. But number two, one of the greatest sabotage, one of the greatest things that can sabotage our group growth is that we allow narcissism to go unchecked. Wait, what? Narcissism? How is that in the text? Show me what's going on here. Well, narcissism will erode the health of a group. And as we said last week, without a healthy group, you will not grow, not to the capacity and the potential that God wants to bring about in you. What is narcissism? Narcissism is characterized by a grandiose sense of self-importance, a lack of empathy for others, a need for excessive admiration, and the belief that one unique, one is unique and deserving of special treatment. Simply put, it's when someone in a group transforms the identity of a group from we to me. 
They make the whole group about themselves. Brian Regan, one of my favorite older comedians, used to talk about the me monster, right? No matter where they went, they just talked about me, 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 and they're always looking for a way to one-up the next person or to put themselves at the center of the conversation. It's a great example of narcissism. Now maybe you're thinking, but Gabe, is that really the issue here in the text? Is it anchored in the text? Actually, Paul thought this was one of the most important issues. Remember this whole section, right, around transformation is couched in this community right here. This is what, to be a concrete example of this transformed life. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul warns us about, here in verse 3, look with me again. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. His first explicit warning is narcissism, this grandiose sense of self, which then of course leads to a lack of empathy and then seeks to constantly put oneself at the center of attention, believing that one deserves special treatment because they think too highly of themselves. Instead, we are to assess ourselves with sober judgment, which is a, a very practical and sensible assessment. Now, if you're assessing yourself, you're assessing yourself against something. And the Apostle Paul says we are to assess ourselves against or according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, that particular passage is debated in the text and commentators and translators have wrestled through it. But I think it makes the most sense when wrestling through the internal logic of the text to see this as an argument of saying, listen, everyone enters this new family, this body, the exact same way. There's no one who's got it better made or someone who's got it worse made. We all enter by God's grace through faith. That's what you are to assess yourself against. This equal playing field at the foot of the cross that everyone is broken, everyone is, has got a past and got these experiences of brokenness, and the only way we're a part of this family is by God's grace through faith. And the moment that narcissism starts to creep in, that someone thinks that they're a little bit better than someone else, that they have this grandiose sense of self, that the empathy starts to go out the back door, that they think they always need to be at the center of attention, it can sabotage a group. It can sabotage a whole community. So what does it look like when narcissism is in the body? Well, I'm going to describe a couple scenarios and you're going to instantly recognize them, okay? You may not have had the language for it, but the moment you've experienced that in either a group of friends or a Bible study or a community group or a church setting or even in a work setting, you know instantly what it feels like. It's when someone incessantly talks about themselves, their ideas, their problems. Like they take every story that someone shares and they re redirect it to their own life's problems. They're either the worst in the world so they've got this extraordinary pity complex. I'm the worst, I'm the worst. Or they're the best in the world. That's the opposite extreme of that, is pride. They can't empathize with others and so they minimize other people's pain. That's not that bad, get over it, right? Because all they can do is see things through their own experience. They can't handle rebuke or correction because they're in constant need of affirmation to know that they're loved, that they have such a sensitive spirit, which is ironic in the midst of their inflated perspective of themselves. And frankly, they may believe they deserve more time and attention than anyone else. When you come to have those conversations, they're shocked, they're surprised. Because of course, do you know who I am? I, I need this space, I need this time. And so they feel no sense of error in consuming the whole time of the group. So how does it sabotage the body? 
this community that Jesus is fabricating or creating, most group members, and you know this, we don't know how to navigate this. This is a complex issue. And so we either write the individual off, or we feel guilty because we don't know what to do, or we feel crazy thinking, am I the only one who's thinking what I'm thinking in this moment? And so we never say anything to them. Instead, we just talk about them. And although we may have a smile on our face, we have bitterness growing in our heart, and it poisons the whole environment where we become consumed by one person other than Jesus rather than growing together in Christ-likeness. So Paul knew this, and he doesn't want us to be naive, okay? This is why he warns about it explicitly in the passage to fellow Christians, okay? So what can we do? If we want to grow, if we want to change, and if our growth and our change is intimately linked to our communal identity and growth, then we need to fight for us. We need to fight for who we actually are called to be, to embrace our identity as Christ's body. And the way we do that is by practicing identity correction, not behavior modification. So if you may remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about left brain and right brain. And in our right brain, where we act spontaneously, we have our identity and our values are anchored there. We often don't even recognize that we're acting out of our identity. The Apostle Paul does something absolutely brilliant in our text. He focuses on who the church is rather than just what someone does. I mean, sometimes we can come to the text and we can focus exclusively on what the biblical authors say and we can completely miss how they're modeling brilliant leadership. Notice what Paul does here. So Paul, he's addressing someone who has a malformed identity of narcissism and he answers them with a robust communal identity framework. You see, if someone is tempted to think too individualistically or too high of themselves, Paul reminds the church who they are. Look with me again at verse 5. He says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. He moves from me to we as it's informed by the gospel. He takes them out of an individualistic framework and reminds them just by the pronouns he's using that they are a part of a community and to actually reimagine themselves within a body rather than as an elevated individual apart from the group. I want you to take some time, maybe over the next couple of weeks, and to just read through some of the Apostle Paul's letters because this is not abnormal for him. He does this again and again. He consistently goes to identity. Who are we? Who are we? And forming the right brain where we act most spontaneously before he ever gets to character or to rather to behavior correction. He does address behavior, but after he's laid an identity framework. And one way this has worked out for my family and I, we've tried to implement this. Actually, we didn't know we were doing this. Um, I think it was probably my wife's idea because she's way smarter than I am. But, you know, often when our kids disobey us or they obey us way later. So procrastination and obedience, you learn quickly as a parent, is just disobedience, <laughs> delayed. <laughs> so sometimes you need your children to do something quickly, and they're like, I'll do it in like 10 years. It's like, no, that's disobedience because you need to do it now. So in those moments, we could either just address behavior or we could engage in identity. And we have like a family liturgy um, that right now they kind of dread, I think, at times. But sometimes when we are experiencing disobedience from our kids, we say, when do we obey? And they respond with, right away. When do we obey? Right away. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. 
Mommy and daddy are also accountable. When God calls us to do something, when do we obey? When we feel like it? When we think we agree with him? No, we obey right away. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And God has put you and under the care of mommy and daddy, and so we seek to love you. And so you also are to obey right away as children at this stage in your life. It's not quick. It takes time. But we're getting to identity, not just behavior. So why do this? Okay, it seems like a whole lot of work. Um, well, actually, Paul understands how character changes way better than we do. If it's just about feeling superior to someone and bringing about correction, you can do that by just pointing to behavior. But if you want to bring about change in others and see that as a community, it's going to take a lot of hard work. You see, our character is our automatic response to our environment. It's this outpouring to what we believe and what we're deeply convicted by and our identity and our values, right? Such that whatever happens, you're almost not even thinking about it, but you naturally act that way. And our character draws from two libraries. It draws from the history of observed actions by others. So the things you've seen modeled in your life by people around you, especially authority figures, as well as the values of our people, the people that you consider you're a part of, the, the people that you have a shared identity with. Their values are your values, and that's how we most quickly respond is through our value structure of our people and the modeling we've seen growing up. This is all part of the prefrontal cortex and the right brain and how it brings values and identity together. But listen, listen, listen. If we want character to change, if we want to grow, What's fascinating is we need people who can model a different way of living, who are committed to our good. This is why the Apostle Paul says brilliantly again and again and again throughout his letters, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. Or he'll point to other leaders and say, imitate those around you who are doing these things, right? We need godly modeling in our life to actually change out the library that we grew up with. And then we also need people around us who remind us of our values as God's people. We don't do this because this is what we value. This is who we are. We act this way because of who we are and because of what God has called us to value, which is way more robust and broad rather than giving specific examples to every situation in life, which we can't do. It becomes a broader paradigm that equips us to act with godly character no matter what comes. So how do we do this? Okay, how do we be a community that's actually about this and one another? Well, I'm going to give you six steps uh, to a process, okay, that's a helpful discipline to engage. And here they are, okay. First, if you find that you see narcissism creeping up in someone in a group that you're a part of, but you want to pursue their good and you have that relational equity, first, pray. <laughs> pray and ask that the Spirit would intervene. Because it is the Spirit who convicts of sin. It is God who is bringing about this work in their life. So first, pray. Then secondly, find a space to sit quietly and affirm non-verbally with your eye contact and your body posture that you're for them, right? You don't want to come in with antagonistic body posture or anger, but instead come in with body posture that communicates, I'm committed to you, I'm attached to you, I'm in this with you. Then verbally affirm that by saying, I am with you. And you know I love you. You know we're in this together. You're my brother or you're my sister. We're in this together. And then remind them who we are and invite them back. So here's a helpful little formula. We do not fill in the blank. Instead, we are people who. 
Okay? We do not fill in the blank. Instead, we are people who. So for example, let's say someone is constantly minimizing someone's pain in your group and you don't know how to navigate it. Here's a helpful way if you use that formula to kind of engage with identity correction rather than behavior modification. You can say, you know what, as God's people, as followers of Jesus, we don't downplay other people's pain. We are a people who weep with those who weep. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us? That we are those who weep with those who weep. We don't try to always fix it. We don't try to put ourselves in their story. Sometimes we just sit in it and we weep with others and acknowledge their pain. That's who we are. That's the kind of people Jesus is calling us to be. Another example, you might have someone who's constantly turning everybody else's stories back to themselves and trying to put themselves in the center of other people's stories. You can say, we do not turn everyone else's joys or pains back to our own joys and pains. We are a people who honor each other's story and actually point to Jesus. That's who we are as Jesus people. And so you need to give enough specificity of the failure so as to show how it doesn't line up with who Scripture calls us to be in those spaces. And then, and this is maybe the hardest part, be present. Because after a hard conversation, one of two things you want to do. You either want to fight or you want to fly, right? This is, it's kind of an awkward moment, um, but you need to be more committed and more attached than ever in communicating that after you've had conversa- hard conversations, your love, your commitment isn't contingent on comfort. So important as we see modeled both in what God and Christ has done for us, but now how we do that for one another. And I know this feels really weird, doesn't it? Partly because we're just not good at healthy confrontation in our culture. We have a niceness about us, especially in the middle, uh, I almost said the Middle East, but the Midwest. um, That's not true in the Middle East. There's a great sense of like great health and ability to actually engage in difficult conversation in the Middle East that we could learn in the Midwest, by the way. Um, But here, we'd rather point at behavior because it's quicker rather than engage in identity, which is the long game. It's right-brained. It's more difficult, but it's also more beautiful. And maybe, just frankly, we have some pain here. We've had or seen situations where conflict resolution was really just a means of destroying a relationship rather than an opportunity for growing intimacy and connection. But this is where change happens, okay? We need to practice this. And this is going to feel even weirder. I'm going to encourage you to get a couple people together and actually go through that formula, think through a couple scenarios, and just practice this one with another. This is what we call a corporate discipline. We're better at the individual disciplines because we're very steeped in individualism in our Western culture, but this is important for us to practice together, to train off the spot so we're ready on the spot so that when narcissism does creep up, what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, we are ready to engage and actually pursue. Because can you imagine, listen, listen, imagine, imagine, imagine this, a community that fights for us to be us. That means whenever you get together, you know actually healthy conversation is going to be pursued. You'd be challenged, you'd be loved, your best interests are going to be pursued, not perfectly, but you know that's what people are pursuing because that's who we are. You would feel free to be honest and open, not to have all the answers, 
And if somebody does mistreat your vulnerability, you know the group will both care for you and for that individual. If you happen to be the one who mistreats someone's vulnerability, you know you're not gonna instantly be excluded, but you're gonna be, yes, helpfully challenged and then reinvited into a deeper intimacy. Joy will be fought for, love will be maintained. And as you grow more secure with one another, you're gonna find that you're more secure with yourself. As you grow in your love for God together, you're going to find that your love for God individually will begin to grow. And you'd know that if disagreements came, if challenges spark up, then you're going to be ready. You're going to be ready to navigate those as followers of Jesus, as a family. That's the kind of humble confidence that's not just individual, but is communal that we need if we long to become the people God longs us to become. If we want to be about change, if we want to be about transformation, and we need community to do that, this is how we can help fight those things that threaten a healthy community. This is where change happens. And one of the best places for most people, at least in our church community, for that to go deeper is in a community group. It's not a perfect place. People are all trying to figure this out. But I would encourage you to just save September 20th as a time to say, you know what, this is where I need to grow. And I'm going to actually step into a community and allow others to get to know me. We're going to get into this community and we're going to be pursuing each other's growth. And we're actually going to not allow narcissism to go unchecked, whether it's in myself or others. This is the church that Jesus has called out. This is the church that Jesus founded. This is the church that Jesus is building. Not so we can get to heaven one day, but so that we can actually know his life and life abundant even now. What prevents change? Communal sabotage is one of the greatest threats to your change and mine. Let's lean into God's path this identity correction by leaning into who God's called us to be so that we can go the distance. Let's pray together. God, I know, I know for me, this was fresh. And I know for so many of us, when we're used to just thinking in individual categories of change, these communal components are more difficult to fathom and to get our minds wrapped around. I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to lean into this as a church that we might more robustly lean into one another and that we would not allow either a faulty understanding or narcissism to go unchecked in our community, but instead lovingly attach and pursue one another enough to actually get <laughs> and to step into the mess with one another and be committed to each other through it. God, that's what your spirit does among us, not just within us individually, but among us together. May it be so. Protect us as your church. We love you. Thanks for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, one place that our narcissism <laughs> is challenged every, every time we come together is at the Lord's Supper. Where we're reminded that no matter who we are, we come and we equally receive God's grace, represented in God's or Jesus's broken bread as represented in uh, Jesus's broken body represented in bread and Jesus's blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins represented in common juice. It's here at the Lord's Supper. We remember that we are a community that actually fights for us to be us in Christ. 
Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're watching this and you'd like to partake in this meal, now would be a perfect time to do that. If you have some elements ready, this would be great. If you don't have them ready yet, you can just pause this right here, gather some things together, gather some folks around in your house or your loft, um, and partake together in remembrance of Jesus. But before we do partake, let's remember who we are and why we do this. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, take and eat.